0: Let's get started.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Marketing Tips podcast. I'm Corey, one of your hosts, and with me today is a very special guest to talk about wages, labor laws, and your practice, Ashley Schachter, an associate attorney at Baker Hostetler. Ashley, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much, Corey. Happy to be here.
1: We're excited to have you. So, Ashley focuses her practice on labor and employment law, representing clients on a wide scope of labor and employment law issues, including employment litigation before administrative agencies in state and federal courts. So for today's episode, we're gonna run through some questions submitted by listeners regarding wages and labor laws. Ashley, are you ready to dive in? Yeah, let's get started. Awesome, so first question, Uh, What are some of the trends that you're kind of seeing nationwide uh, and then also in the state of Florida when it comes to wages and labor laws?
2: Yeah, so um, kind of a two-part answer, I guess. Um, First, there's trends that we're seeing as far as the legislation out there and then trends as far as litigation, what kind of lawsuits are actually getting filed. Um, So as far as New legislation, Um, we're definitely seeing a trend towards, and I'm sure, you know, our listeners may have seen this in the media, um, the $15 minimum wage, increasing minimum wage throughout the country. Um, You know, the federal minimum wage has been stagnant for a really long time. So we're seeing a lot of states and even localities, cities, counties that are enacting ordinances that are generally gradually, you know, hiking the minimum wage on an annual basis, heading towards that $15 mark. So um, that's definitely a trend we're seeing and something that we're counseling a lot of our employer clients through. Another one that we're starting to see is something called predictive workweek scheduling laws. So what that is, is um, laws, typically they're local, that would require an employer to give an employee a good faith estimate of what their schedule is going to be upon hire. And then there are um, requirements that the employer pay, what is called predictive pay, if they do things like canceling a shift or cutting hours. You know, any of our listeners that may have ever worked in retail or restaurants may be well familiar with the idea that companies will. Be that you know the dining room is empty or it's a slow day and they'll cut hours kind of um, off the cuff and that can certainly have an impact on workers as far as their take-home income so the thought is that these ordinances will um, at least compensate employees with some type of predictive pay whether it be at their regular rate or a half rate uh, hour. I'm sorry a half of their regular rate um, so that they at least get some compensation and don't feel as much of the brunt of those changes. Uh, So those are probably two of the bigger changes that we're seeing on a wage and hour side. Um, And then from a litigation standpoint, we're still seeing a lot of cases around um, misclassification of workers. And what I mean by that is, for example, somebody that um, as an employer we are saying you are exempt under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the federal law that governs wage and hour, and because you're exempt, you're not entitled to things like overtime. Um, if you get that wrong and the person is not really exempt and they don't meet the tests that are imposed under the law for the type of duties that they have to be doing or the salary, minimum salary that they have to be paid, then the employee can bring a lawsuit to recover things like any unpaid overtime for hours worked over 40. So we see that a lot. Um, one of the exemptions that is commonly misapplied is the administrative exemption. We'll see a lot of employers just say, it's an administrative position, or it's you know record keeping, it's data entry, and the analysis for them kind of ends there, and they put somebody as exempt who really shouldn't be, and they may not, have um, met all of the required duties for that exemption and so then the worker will bring a lawsuit for unpaid unpaid wages. So that's a common one. Um, And then another common one that is particularly difficult to defend is what we call an off-the-clock case. And what that is is a worker bringing a lawsuit saying, you told me I had to work while not being clocked in or you manipulated my time record so that I wouldn't go over 40 hours and you wouldn't have to pay me overtime. Or sometimes in this more technology driven world, we're seeing things like you required me to respond to emails and text messages while I was not clocked in. I am not exempt under the FLSA. I'm entitled to overtime. And when you add in all that extra time that I was working on my device off the clock, Um, I'm entitled to a substantial amount of damages. So um, those are probably the two most common um, pitfalls that we see for employers that result in litigation. And um, I would say that's pretty consistent nationwide and in the state of Florida that we see lawsuits on those subjects.
1: Yeah, I'm sure some of our listeners are taking some notes and going, "Uh uh-oh, right now.
2: Yeah, Um, you always want to check with your attorney regarding those exemptions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So great answer. Um, And then speaking of the listeners, I do want to say that um, if you are interested in um, anything that Ashley is saying, we are going to have a full transcription on the website. So don't feel like you actually have to take those notes. We will have everything available for you so you don't have to scribble everything down. So again, great answer. Um, So yeah, let's keep going. Let's jump on to this next question from Cynthia from Texas. And she says, uh, sometimes my surgeon will run long and if we're at the end of the week and surgery runs over, does this count as overtime?
2: Yeah. So, um, Cynthia, I appreciate the question. I I wish I could ask you a couple follow up questions. Um, <laughs> seems like that's always us attorneys. We have a million questions for you when you come to us. But my first question is overtime for who? I'm not sure if she's referring to the surgeon or if she's referring to somebody that's in with the surgeon who's um, helping him or her or um, administrative folks. But To the extent she's talking about the surgeon, the surgeon's not entitled to overtime. I I think that should be clear. But um, as a surgeon, you know, he's a professional, he's exempt, um, so it's not gonna have any impact on his take-home pay. But if there's other workers that are assisting him um, in surgery, then their entitlement to overtime is gonna depend on two things. Uh, One, whether they're exempt or not under the FLSA. And by that, I mean, are they Generally salaried, or are they entitled to overtime? They're an hourly worker. Um, and then the second thing is how many hours they've worked in that given week. So, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, everything is done on a week by week basis, including a person's entitlement to overtime. So, the inquiry is always what happened in that given work week, and are they already at 40 hours? Everything over 40 hours, they're going to be entitled to time and a half pay. And by that, I mean time and a half um, is one and a half times their regular rate of pay. So it's possible that you could have your surgeon running over, but the folks that are in there assisting him are uh, non-exempt. They're generally entitled to overtime pay, but they're not going over that 40-hour mark. So he could run over and it doesn't have any effect on um, their getting overtime. If they are already at, you know, 39 hours when they walk in the door to do surgery and the surgery runs six hours or something like that, uh, then yes, they would be entitled to overtime for any hours worked over 40.
1: Right. And I think, and and again, I don't know either, but I think, yeah, she would have been referring to anyone that's actually on the the team to help. So um, yeah, again, great answer. Uh, Let's move on to Ravi from Florida. And he says, what notice must be provided before an employee is terminated or laid off in
2: Florida? Yeah, so I think this one is something that um, trips up a lot of people. uh, As far as when can you fire somebody in Florida? What do you have to do? I think there's sometimes a misconception that In every state, there's only a certain number of things that people can be terminated for. And so the general rule, unless there's contrary state legislation and Florida follows the general rule, is that all employment is at will unless there's an employment contract. And so at will employment means that the employee can quit the job at any time, with or without notice for any reason. And it also means that the employer can terminate the employee at any time with or without notice for any reason, one little asterisk there, so long as it's not an unlawful reason. So you can't terminate somebody because of their, you know, sex or their religion or their, um, you know, national origin, any of those protected categories. But as long as it's not something like that, you can terminate um, at will for any reason in Florida. Um, That being said, I would say that when you are terminating someone, you want to follow some sort of consistent practice as far as um, notice. There may be some scenarios. In general, I tell my clients, you want to reserve the right to terminate immediately if it, the, the situation warrants it. So, you know, if somebody is being violent or they're found to be stealing or they're engaged in some sort of really egregious behavior, you want to reserve the right even if you generally do a progressive discipline um, to terminate immediately. And you can put that in a handbook if you have one. Um, but in general, if it is something where notice would be appropriate, you know, try to give the same amount of notice to all of your employees as best you can. And that's kind of a recurring theme that may come up in other answers too, is whenever we have a practice of what we do um, as an employer, we wanna to try to be consistent And that is for just fundamental kind of fairness reasons. And so there's not a showing of favoritism or anything like that. But it's also because you don't want to expose yourself to potential claims such as, well, you know, John got terminated and you gave him two weeks' notice and he's a white male. And I got terminated and I'm an African-American female and you gave me one day to get out. So you don't want to have things that are applied Differentially like that because you can open yourself up to discrimination claims and other issues like that um, But technically the answer is in Florida There's no specific requirement for what kind of notice you give if you, it doesn't have to be in writing It can be in person it doesn't have to be any specific set amount of time or anything like that so you can determine what practice works best for your business and just try to apply it consistently um, unless, as I mentioned, there's some sort of uh, pressing reason why we've got to immediately terminate or something like that.
1: You briefly mentioned their uh, handbooks, and we didn't get a question from a listener on this, but I was just thinking, what is the the kind of best practice or general rule of thumb for reviewing a handbook? I know that a lot of times when employees come in, you know, they have to sign something that says that they've reviewed it. And then it gets filed away and that's kind of that. Do you think it makes sense for practices to open that up every now and then and just kind of run through that one more time or is just the once Okay.
2: Um, with the employees or as far as revising it year to year
1: with the employees themselves.
2: I think that there might be some policies that make sense to highlight on an annual or every other year basis. I don't know that it's necessary to go through the entirety of the handbook with employees, but um, For example, we suggest doing things like anti-harassment training um, and sort of a respect in the workplace training every year, every other year, you know, something like that, just to kind of brush up employees. And when you do that, you can have them sign something that indicates that they attended that training and that can be placed in their file, which is helpful if there's ever a lawsuit or anything like that, you can show that we've made a good faith attempt to educate our employees on those issues. And then, you know, as far as, I know you didn't exactly ask this, but just as far as reviewing the handbook uh, ourselves as the employer, generally, I would say kind of the same thing every year, every other year, we want to take a look at the handbook and make sure um, that it is up to date with whatever the current status of the law is in each of the states in which um, you're operating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then actually speaking of harassment, that kind of transitions into the next question we got. Uh, And then this is from Um, anonymous in also in florida um but but they said that there's an older physician at our practice that's somewhat inappropriate with some of the females on the team surprisingly in this me too climate so far there hasn't been a formal complaint we just sort of say quote that's the way he is end quote so what should i be prepared for when a complaint does come in and what's the process there Hey guys, Corey here, co-host of the Dr. Marketing Tips podcast. And I wanted to interrupt this episode just for a minute to tell you about Insight Training Solutions. So Insight Training Solutions is an ongoing employee engagement and training platform for your medical practice, meaning employees can log on and take these medical practice-specific trainings whenever and wherever they are. And each training is meant to increase employee engagement, improve practice reputation, and develop some patient service mindsets. If we're being honest, something that we all know some of the employees may lack. Not uh, calling anybody out by name, but uh, one of the cool things about Insight Training Solutions is they're always developing new content. And they just released 10 Steps to a Phenomenal Patient Experience, where you'll learn how to create a phenomenal patient experience, strengthen job security, and discover customer service secrets for your entire team. So this course is in addition to the other ones they already have, which include communication across generations and how to understand today's multi-generational workforce and how to develop overall patient experience. This is another course, the new approach to customer service. We've also got eight ways to wow patients and you can sign up for a free trial to see what everything is about uh, at insight training solutions.io that's insight training solutions.io or just google insight training solutions you'll be glad you did
2: so this one makes me nervous for our listener um you know (laughs) This is a difficult one usually in other industries. If we have, you know, sort of a bad actor like this, somebody that's constantly being a problem. I would tell them we need to look very quickly at, you know, discipline or training or even termination because if we know that this person is a problem and we're getting complaints, even if they're informal about him and we keep him on And we say that's just the way he is. That's not going to look very good if a lawsuit's going to be filed. And, you know, I think it's something important for people to know that it's really not a defense that, for example, somebody was raised in another era and, you know, they think that certain, um, you know, racial language is appropriate or they think that certain, you know, sex based language is appropriate. That's not really a defense and the standard is still we've got to make sure all of our employees are being treated with respect. So my suggestion here, um, before we even get to the complaint process, is can we get this person into some sort of training? Can we have a conversation with him about what's expected um, as far as workplace conduct and how to talk appropriately to um, females and other staff members in the workplace? I think that's a conversation that needs to be had I'd also encourage this employer to look at, do they have a strong anti-harassment policy in their handbook? Uh, is that something that's getting distributed to employees when they get hired? And then again, as we were kind of talking about before, are we doing any sort of annual or um, every other year training on those issues? Because as this person mentioned, you know, this is a definitely a hot topic area right now and something that employers are being held to a really high standard so we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to prevent these kind of situations um and then as far as the complaint you know she asked what should i be prepared for when a complaint comes in i'm sorry it could be a he too it's anonymous but this person asked (laughs) about complaints um I'm not sure if they're talking about internal complaints or external, so I'll kind of answer both. If it's a formal internal complaint, we want to make sure that we have some sort of process set up by which any complaints we investigate. So I typically recommend that we put something in our handbook and we follow this procedure that any and all complaints are promptly investigated We shouldn't guarantee complete anonymity because you can't do that and get to all the facts, but you can say that it'll be handled as confidentially as possible. Um, That person that's complaining should be interviewed. The um, physician or any other team member that is complained about should also be interviewed. And then any potential witnesses to the behaviors should be talked to. And then at the end of that investigation, ideally, you want to let Um, the complaining party and the accused party know what was the conclusion of the investigation. And then if there is a reason for concern and we think that something happened, then the next step is deciding what's the appropriate response. And that could be anything from a, depending on the severity of the behavior, a written warning um, and training, all the way up to termination if it's found to be sufficiently serious. So that's kind of the process that we recommend for internal complaints. Um, and then another thing that trips up a lot of employers is what happens if somebody comes to me and says, I have a complaint, but I don't wanna make it a formal complaint yet. I'm just sort of informally venting about this person. Our suggestion is a best practices You've got to report that up to HR as a receiving supervisor and you should encourage that person to report it to HR Themselves because if we don't address these problems, you know, they can really just fester and um, we want to avoid that at all costs. So That's the internal side and then as far as external if the person is bringing a sexual harassment complaint before they can get to a court they have to go through what's called the administrative exhaustion process. So, what that employee would do is they have to file what's called a charge of discrimination with the EEOC, that's the federal agency that enforces these laws or the Florida state equivalent, which is the Florida Commission on Human Relations. And one of those agencies will investigate the complaint. That usually respond I'm sorry, that usually involves the complaining party putting their complaint in writing then as the employer we would have an opportunity to respond with what's called a position statement laying out you know what we dispute in their complaint adding any other helpful facts and then there's typically some opportunity for the parties to provide supporting documents Um, but one thing that a lot of employees and employers alike don't realize is that that process can take a very long time so those agencies are really backlogged and I'm seeing charges that will sit at particularly the EEOC for you know eight ten months up to two years I've seen so it can be a long time and it can can really drag out um, so that is another reason why it's helpful if for example we did an investigation to have some documentation about that because by the time it gets to litigation, a couple of years could have gone by, and if we don't have somebody's notes on what happened and the results of the investigation and kind of who said what, or maybe some witness statements, as you can imagine, it can get really difficult to um, dis- Determine exactly what happened if we're talking two or three years ago. So right. that's the Absolutely. first part of the external and then the second part would be a lawsuit. So. I hope that helps.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that uh, hopefully that, that's more than enough information and, and just sort of starting that line of communication and, and possibly the, the training and the discussions like you mentioned kind of at the top of the answer is enough for Anonymous in Florida. But um, yeah, let's uh, let's transition to something that is a uh, little, little bit lighter, but still definitely important. Um, so this comes from... Debbie in Florida. And and she says that uh, sometimes my team misses or skips breaks when we're behind or we're just kind of hustling throughout the day. So is there a violation or anything that we should be aware of that can come back to bite us? And to provide some additional context here, what I think she's, what she's saying is usually the team is okay with skipping breaks, but I think she's worried that, you know, maybe one team member may just get a little disgruntled that he misses 15 or his, you know, 30 or something like that. And then I think, I think that's what she's asking.
2: Yeah. So um, one thing to be aware of is that it, there isn't a Florida or federal law that requires us to give meal or coffee breaks to employees if they are over 18. I'm assuming most of our litner- listeners are not going to have workers under 18. Right. Um, so if they're under 18, you've got to give them a 30 minute break for every four hours but that probably is not a requirement that many of our listeners are going to be dealing with. I just mentioned that as sort of the asterisk. Um, So there isn't technically a requirement that we provide breaks. Um, I think potentially there's sort of a morale issue if we are promising, for example, an hour lunch break and people are continually unable to take that. Um, So that's something we want to be careful with there and are we appropriately staffed so that people can get breaks throughout the day and stay efficient, stay fed, you know, and um, to have a good working environment. So I think that's sort of a practical and a morale consideration that we want to just be wary of. Um, And then the other thing that I would note is if we do provide short breaks, so like five to 20 minutes um, that are sort of like a, coffee break or back in the day as they say might have been a smoke break things like that although the employee can do whatever they want with it those do need to be paid Um, so the Department of Labor that's kind of their stance on the short breaks 20 minutes or less they should be paid they're supposed to be breaks that you know just kind of allow the employee to decompress for a moment and ultimately increase efficiency in the workplace so that's sort of the thought behind why um, they should be paid Um, meal breaks, a bona fide meal break, that's usually going to be something 30 minutes or more. Um, the person should not be interrupted. That should be, they should be clocked out for that if they are a non-exempt worker. Um, but in general, there's not a, you know, rule or a law that they are running afoul of by especially voluntarily skipping breaks. There just might be a morale issue if people are, um, feeling like they can't take a break when they've been promised breaks.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's transition to, uh, let's see, we've got Marie here from Georgia and she said, how often should we change rate of pay? I thought this was an interesting question. She said, we do it annually, but others are doing it more or less often. And what's kind of the trend in the industry? And, And I assume again that she's asking this because you know, it's pretty difficult to attract and retain employees. And, and I think she's wondering if other people are changing the rate of pay um, more often to help keep employees.
2: So um, in general, there's no legal requirement as far right. as, you know, when those raises or things like that have to happen. Most companies across industries I see do it annually, um, like merit raises and things like that. Um, as far as other companies changing it, I'm not aware of any trend of you know, companies in the medical industry doing more than an annual raise just to sort of bolster their ability to recruit, but they may do an annual raise that is higher um, than it might have been in the past to try to you know, get them to market, so to speak. Um, so I think that's just going to depend on you know, what does what the market pay? And I see Marie's in Georgia for a specific position in Georgia. And do we want to, you know, bump up to go to market. Um, and for that, I'd probably need some more specifics because I'm not sure exactly what position she's talking about or you know what market they're in. But as far as just How often to give a raise, I would say a year is very typical across all industries and I haven't seen a trend of going to semi annually or anything like that to um, attract workers.
1: Okay. So, Cliff from Florida says, I don't have everyone on our team on direct deposit. Can I make it a rule where payment has to come via direct deposit?
2: Yeah, we get this one a lot. So, um, technically, no. In Florida, you can suggest it, but you can't require it. You have to provide some sort of alternative method. Um, so it's a pain in the butt th- to write checks. It <laughs> is. Yeah, um, but unfortunately, you can't require direct deposit. I have seen some employers go the route of, you know, they'll offer um, if your business has this capability, like a, a debit card type of thing that has the pay for the pay period loaded onto it. But I don't know that that's less of a headache than just writing a check. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we can certainly strongly encourage it, but we can't require it.
1: And last question here, because we're running a little bit uh, short on time. So this comes from Lisa in Florida, and she says, medical marijuana was recently legalized in our state. Is there a blanket policy we can put in place for employees? We've had meetings and discussions and are developing a policy internally, but just looking for guidance on where to start.
2: Yeah, so this is one I've been tracking um, because it's just fascinating uh, nationwide, and it's Marijuana is just being dealt with so differently across the nation. So Lisa, if she's in Florida. She's actually one of the lucky ones, assuming, you know, that their um, practice or business doesn't cross state lines. But Florida, uh, while we do have medical marijuana, there's no employment protections for it. So I think that's one thing that gets people confused a lot is you'll hear, well, for instance, Colorado has recreational marijuana. So anybody can just smoke marijuana whenever they want. Well, technically, in Colorado, they've got a provision in their constitution that says employers don't have to allow for the use of medical or recreational marijuana. So while it may be decriminalized, there's no employment protection for it. Um, We're starting to see some states roll out employment protections. We're also starting to see a trend, I would say, of especially national employers or employers that are multi-state just kind of taking it off their drug testing panel because they don't want to deal with the Accommodation issues or the various, you know, differences in state law, but in Florida, you are really picking what way you want to go as an employer because there's no employment protections. You can do one of two things: you can have, you know, a if you already have a drug-free workplace policy, you are fine to keep doing that. Um, you can test for marijuana in Florida. You can terminate somebody who tests positive. You can decline to hire somebody who tests positive, even if they have a medical marijuana card. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can um, decide that you're basically gonna treat it like alcohol and not ask questions about it, unless that, unless an employee is exhibiting behaviors that show that they're you know intoxicated on the job or they're under the influence, they can't get their work done, those types of things. Um, So those are kind of the two most prominent approaches that I have seen, is either we're going away from being a totally drug-free workplace and just sort of treating marijuana and alcohol very similarly, or we are a drug-free workplace um, and we're gonna stick with that and you're allowed to do that in Florida. Uh, The thing I would just say, is, kind of talked about this earlier, is be consistent whatever you do. So, um, you know, if you have a drug-free workplace, you don't want to allow somebody to keep working even though they tested positive, and then another person tests positive and you terminate them. You want to make sure that we're consistent in whatever we're doing. Um, but you do have some leeway in Florida to choose the approach that works best for your business. Thinking about things like you know safety concerns, obviously if we're in the medical field, there's a level of precision that's required and expected for that, so um, you may, be in a position where leaning towards drug free just makes more sense for your business. And you're allowed to do that in Florida.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, again, thank you, Ashley, for being mm-hmm. here. Thank you to the listeners for submitting awesome questions and sorry, we didn't get to touch on all of them, but I think we did learn a lot from the time that we we did have. And um, Ashley, if our listeners want to connect with you, how should they go about doing that?
2: Yeah, so um, my law firm, again, is Baker Hostetler. You can find us at www.bakerlaw.com. And um, you can also reach me via email if you'd like. Um, Again, I'm Ashley Schachter, and my email is A-S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R, and that's at bakerlaw.com.
1: Awesome. Thanks again for joining us, and thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Dr. Marketing Tips podcast, and we'll catch you in the next one.